Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. As you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1, as we're going to finish out Nothing is Impossible part 2, as we look at that section in Luke chapter 1, 26 through 38. And I'm going to apologize in advance because the cough continues with me. Last week I was, for the most part, over it. Now it's come back. And I thought her song was longer and thought I would get this long just down, but did not happen. So you may hear me crunching here a little bit. Nothing is impossible. Amen? You know, that song and just the play just captured truly what Christmas is about. And even with that, it helps us understand, as you and I view the world today, that we live in a time of great uncertainty, do we not? We, whether we reflect on politics, religion, or culture, it seems that everything has turned topsy-turvy. Men are now considered women. Women are now men. We have toppled over science, biology, nature, and even common sense to accommodate any and every wild idea and vain philosophy of the world. What once was called evil is now good. And what was good is now evil. There seems to be no end to the depravity of man's mind and heart as everyone pursues what is, what is right in their own eyes. In the name of tolerance for all, we have codified incoherent and contradictory ideas into law, forcing others not to only accept, but also to approve and to affirm that which goes against conscience. Professing ourselves to be wise, we have shown ourselves to be fools. Each generation accuses the other of ineptitude and gross negligence. Families are torn apart, marriages are redefined, sex and gender are realigned, and an unhealthy focus on identity creates barriers where none existed before. A difference of opinion, ethnicity, and religion is now considered hate speech, and tolerance has now become a one-way street. It's into these uncertain times that Luke writes his gospel. It is as relevant to us today as it was, or in 2019, as it was for those in the first century. Luke's gospel is an orderly account of life, of the life of Christ, written that you and I may have certainty of those things that we have been taught, the things we've received, the things that we have believed and trusted. Last week, we explored Luke's orderly account of Gabriel's unexpected encounter with Mary, a young girl, betrothed to Joseph. His arrival brought the promise that she would be a recipient, not a, not a dispenser, but a recipient of God's divine grace through bearing the Messiah, though she was still a virgin. In Luke chapter 1, verse 31, as a matter of review, we read this promise, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This son of promise would be by the most unique baby ever born. One that will bring the redemption of God's people and usher in the kingdom of God. Last week we reviewed two of the certainties found in that passage. You may see them here on the monitor. One is that you and I can have certainty about the person and work of Mary. 
Mary, as many have believed, has said that she's the mother of God or that she was a perpetual virgin. She was conceived without original sin. That she was taken body and soul into heaven and that she plays a unique role even today in redemption. But what you and I found out is we can be certain that all of those things are not true. Doesn't matter how big the institution, how powerful the institution, how influential that institution that continues to teach these doctrines. You and I must understand that that's not true. And I'll bring you back to the message last week. You can go to our website to find that. And what we see is that we live in a world that seeks to minimize the work and person of Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, they dismiss his person, they deny his works, and disparage his teaching. And we found out from last week that Satan works overtime to put our focus on anything other than Christ. So what we do is we we put our attention then on his mother, because she is more favorable than other women. This century-old scheme was the scheme to maximize the person and work of Mary has led many to falsely worship her rather than to emulate her faithful and humble-like servant heart. Do not be deceived, but trust in the certainty of the Scripture witness. So not only does it give us certainty about the person and work of Mary, but it also gives us certainty about the importance of the virgin birth. Again, as a matter of you who may not have been here last week, this is important doctrine that has been denied, dismissed, dismissed, and discounted. The fact that Jesus was born to a virgin. It is impossible, the medical profession declares. It is rubbish and inconceivable, remark human philosophers. It's a substance of myth and legends and fables, remark historians. Even pastors and churches are not immune to the temptation to minimize the importance of the virgin birth. One pastor declares that if somebody can predict their own death and resurrection, I'm not all concerned about how they got into the world. Christianity does not hinge on the truth or even the stories around the birth of Christ. He goes on to say it hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. And I would agree. But without the virgin birth, the resurrection is meaningless. Al Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, if you turn, take it again to the monitor, he tells us this about the importance of that doctrine. He says, if Jesus was not born of the virgin, then the Bible cannot be trusted when it comes to telling us the story of Jesus. And that mistrust cannot be limited to how he came to us in terms of the incarnation. The fact is that biblical Christianity and ultimately the gospel of Christ cannot survive, listen to this, the denial of the virgin birth. Because without the virgin birth, you end up with a very different Jesus than the fully human, fully divine Savior revealed in Scripture. Now this can be a difficult doctrine to swallow. It's hard to comprehend, so I understand what the pastor is attempting to do. He affirms, by the way, the virgin birth, but he's attempting to just say, well, let's just take this out because it's difficult for people to understand. However, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They are foolish. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So you and I have to understand this, is that the natural mind cannot accept this fact, this doctrine. So it should not surprise us when we see uh, arguments about or resistance to that doctrine. 
However, the angel Gabriel in that passage also reminds us in verse 37, if you're there in Luke 31, he says that nothing will be impossible with God. Amen. And that's where you and I stand. The incarnation is the most miraculous event of all time. It is the bedrock of the story of the Bible, and it's the redemption of God's people. J.I. Packer, a pastor, comments this. He says, nothing in fiction, listen to this, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. And you and I must understand that. So today, we're going to continue our study of this promise to Mary as we consider what Luke, through the Holy Spirit, is wanting us to be certain of this passage. Father, I pray that you just be with this morning. I just prayed that you calm my cough. <coughs> Father, that it won't be so distracting. Give us a clear mind and heart to receive your word with gladness and joy. We thank you for Luke's written orderly account. Lord, I pray that we would become and have certainty of the doctrines that you have given to us, that you revealed to us. And Father, may this cause us to rejoice in you this morning as we consider this Christmas season and the hope that's found in the birth of a newborn king. Thank you for bringing us together. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, once more in review and to refresh our memories, this word of promise comes six months after Gabriel had approached Zechariah with the promise of a son who would prepare the way for the Lord. This would be a miraculous birth as both Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth were of advanced age and had never had children. Now Gabriel approaches Mary with the promise of a son, also miraculous since she was still very young and a virgin. Mary is living in Nazareth in the area of Galilee. She is betrothed to Joseph waiting for that day when they would come together and consummate the marriage. After telling her that she will bear a son and call his name Jesus, which means he shall save his people from the sin, the angel shares more information about the child. Now, immediately, as you and I read Luke's account, we realize something special, something unique, something supernatural is happening here. This is no ordinary promise. This is no ordinary prophecy or just another angelic visit from Scripture. The triune God is about to do something so miraculous, so extraordinary, that it's going to change the course of history. So with that, our passage this week reveals the third truth that Luke wants us to be certain of. It's here on the monitor. You and I can have certainty about the person of Christ. You and I also not only need to know, have certainty about who Mary was, Let's not maximize her beyond what Scripture does. We must know about the importance of the virgin birth. It is foundational to the redemption story. But you and I must also have certainty about who Jesus is. Luke reveals not only the origin of Jesus, but also his calling, his plan, and his purpose in God's redemption story chapter. This story of the angelic visit to Mary, of course, is world-renowned. We just saw the play here. It's been the subject of movies, television specials, Christmas carols, and other songs. One popular song seeks to depict the spirit of this promise to Mary. And Mary, did you, or Mary, did you know? The songwriter asks this, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? Did you know that this son that you delivered will now deliver you. That, that, by the way, is a great line. That is a great turn of phrase. 
Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to the blind man? That he'll calm the storm with his hand? That he'll walk where angels trod? And that when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God? Mary, did you know that the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again? The lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the Lamb. Did you know that your baby was the Lord of all creation? And that one day he would rule the nations? And that your baby boy is the heaven's perfect lamb. And that sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. Now most of us have enjoyed that song melody. Many have contemplated its lyrics. Many others have ridiculed this song. Though you and I may not be able to answer each and every one of those specific questions, we do find in Luke's account the answer of at least a few of them. So look with me at Luke chapter 1, and we're going to zero in on verses 31 and verse 33 of our passage. Gabriel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. But listen here in verse 32, He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. What we see in those three verses gives us certainty about who Jesus is. What he will do. And why he will do it. We give three expectations given to Mary about who her son would be. The angel Gabriel tells Mary and us, the reader, that God will give Jesus three things. He will give him a throne, he will give him a house, and he will give him a kingdom. First, we read of God's calling on the child in the, in the, in the end of verse 31 and the beginning of verse 32. His name will be, will be Jesus, which means he saves. He will save his people from their sins. He also declares that Jesus will be great and that he will be the son of the most high God. That is his calling. This is who he is. In identifying his calling, the angel is pointing out the impact that Jesus will have on the world. Pastor John MacArthur remarks on this promise, especially in contrast with what was given to Zechariah and Elizabeth about John the Baptist, their son. The same promise was made of John the Baptist. He will be great. However, the subsequent title is what sets Jesus apart. You see, the title for Jesus is the Son of the Most High, where John the Baptist is called the Prophet of the Most High. You see the difference? Since a son bears his father's qualities, calling a person someone else's son was a way of signifying equality. Here the angel was telling Mary that her son would be equal to the most high God. One theologian writes that in that culture, in that day of age, a dignitary's adult son was deemed equal in stature and privilege with his father. And that the fact that a son is generated by his father guarantees that the son shares the same nature as the father. In this calling, God reveals that Jesus is both truly and fully human and divine. So he's writing here to give certainty for you and I to know that Jesus is truly and fully human, born of a woman, but also truly and fully divine of the spirit. He is the Son of the Most High. He is the Most High. Now this is fulfillment of the prophecy that is found in Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. 
talking of humanness. And you shall call his name, name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Scripture also tells us in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So in those three verses, we see that he is born of a woman. So he is human, but yet he is also fully divine. You and I must be certain of this. This is important for you and I to grasp and understand. We cannot doubt, dismiss, or deny this wonderful great truth. You might remember several years ago, we went through the New City Catechism together. And the New City Catechism captures these important truths when he asks and answers these questions. I'm going to bring your attention to the monitor for this. For the question is number 20, who is the Redeemer? Remember, we are in the chapter of the redemption story of the story of the Bible. We are moving into redemption. Who is going to be the Redeemer? How is God going to redeem his people? In other words, who is the prince and how will he slay the dragon and win the girl? Well, who is the Redeemer? We see the answer is the only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty for, him, for sin and himself. But as we move on to question 21, we have to ask the question, well, what sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Could anyone suffice? Is it well enough for someone to come and say, well, I am the Redeemer, I am the Messiah, and there was many of those throughout the Israel's time. And there still are many today. Well, what sort of redeemer is needed? The answer is one who is truly human and also truly and fully God. And that's an important one. He needs to be both human and by God. And so you and I may ask, though, if you're like me, inquisitive, well, how could that be or why is that important? That leads us to question 22. Please bear with me. For you and I must understand this. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? The answer is that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. And that he might sympathize with our weakness. That's what Galatians 4, 4 tells us, that he was born under the law. So we needed one who could be human, like the first Adam, and live under the rules of the Old Testament law. But he needed to be one who could do it perfectly. He needed to be one who could sympathize with us. Which brings us then to question number 23. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? And this is the last one. And that's because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. So it was not enough for a man to do it. We needed one who had a godly, who was God, who was perfect, and we know that there's only one perfect. And also that he would also bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. In other words, there is no man who could bear the wrath of God and survive. Only God himself could. So you and I must be certain that Jesus is both fully and truly human and divine. That's his calling to come that's the incarnation that you and I celebrate during this Christmas season. God becoming flesh. Secondly, we read that God's plan, so that was God's calling, but then secondly, we read that God's plan is to give him the throne of his father 
and to reign over the house of Jacob forever. So God's plan is to send his son to on this earth in the incarnation so that he may become the righteous ruler. As the adopted son of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Jesus would be the ancestor of David and the right to the throne would come through what's interesting, through the right of adoption. Now, isn't that amazing? Because think of it, how are you and I sons and daughters of God? Not through birth, but through adoption. And so in that, he gives us a great picture of how we too become sons of God. This fulfills God's promise to King David in 2 Samuel. And I'm going to ask you to take a moment and turn to that if you would. That would give me a great opportunity to get a drink of water that I desperately need. 2 Samuel. (coughs) Turn to chapter 7 of that book. There in the Old Testament. And look at verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is a promise given to David from God. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. So this, is an aunt, this will be a descendant. And he says uh, this promise, I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. But look at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So go back to the beginning of my opening message here. You and I live in a day of uncertainty. Our lands and our hearts are as darkness. We continually look for saviors to come and save us from this darkness, to open up our eyes, to make us, uh, to be able to speak and to hear. We look for political saviors and they're disappointed. We look for cultural saviors and to see that they fail us. We look for therapeutic and moralistic types of ways to find peace and to find justice. But yet, it always is like grabbing at at the wind or it's smoke. It just dissipates. Throughout Christ's ministry, those who encountered him would cry out, Son of David. Why did they cry out? Because they recognized that he had, he was the descendant of David. But that son of David had more. It was a kingly title. There were many sons of David. Jesus spoke much of his kingdom and those who would dwell there with him. Jesus himself understood that he was the son of David. He was the rightful heir. He was the the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. You can remember the the interplay between Pontius Pilate and Jesus many times. Are you the king of the Jews? You say it is. It's so. I have a kingdom that's not of this world, Jesus would teach. Even the wise men from the east recognized his identity when they traveled to Jerusalem and asked King Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come 
to worship him. It is into this darkness that Jesus comes as the rightful ruler and king. And Luke writes, so that you and I may have certainty that Jesus is the son of David. And as the son of David, he is the rightful heir, and he came as the Messiah to bring forth his kingdom that is not of this world. The kingdom that he's called you and I to seek after. This is the one who will rule in righteousness and with justice. He came as a light piercing the darkness and bringing certainty into a land and a heart of confusion. What you and I need today is we need a ruler that we can embrace, that you and I can trust, and that you and I can follow. And God's plan of redemption was to give us that king, that wonderful counselor, the mighty king that we find in Isaiah. That's what this world desperately needs. And what we see in that second advent, he will come as that righteous king. Make no mistake, he rules today. And his kingdom is growing, not by location and by location, not by the conquest of nations or, 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 or economic systems or cultural displays. For if we look at that, it seems like Christianity is, is, is receding. An article again this week is, is more, less people are going to church than ever before. We wonder what is going on. Where is the king? We cry out, justice, justice. Why do the wicked continue to seem to prosper? But God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is growing by heart by heart. As each heart submits to him until that day that he comes and reigns physically here on earth. So that is God's plan in redemption. One who will rule in righteousness and justice. And this is written so you and I can have hope and courage in these dark days. But thirdly, in this passage, in these three verses, we read of God's purpose for Jesus. So we see his calling to come and live in this earth in the incarnation, fully God, fully man ready to obey all that God has called him to do, do it perfectly, and then to give himself as a substitute for you and I, his active and his passive obedience. We've spoken of that in the past. But then we see then his, his, his purpose, or yeah, his, per, or his plan was to come and to reign as king, as the dragon to slay, or as the prince to slay the dragon, to win the girl. But then we see here his purpose. And that purpose for Jesus is that his kingdom will have no end. This fulfills what the psalmist who sings in Psalms chapter 2. It's here on the monitor. He says, I will tell you of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of your earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God has a purpose for you. And I think, wait a second, this, this, this baby, he was born. He lived a life and his own people rejected him and put him up to be crucified. 
And yes, the, the church has grown, but it also has, has become something much different than what the scripture has called us to be. Where are the signs of his coming? It's been 2,000 years. What is God's purpose in doing all this? Well, we understand that's the consummation. That's the end of the redemption story. What you and, find, you and I find is you and I can be certain that his kingdom will have no end. Jesus is the messianic king who will bring God's reign and all of the blessings associated with it. In our call to worship earlier, we read the prophetic promises of God to Israel in Isaiah chapter 9. You see, a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The promises of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to hold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is hard for you and I to comprehend. This is difficult for the world to comprehend. But this is what Luke has written so that we may have certainty. Now, I don't know about you, but I ride here each and every Sunday and every day of the week. I pass two or three churches. Their parking lots are filled. And I have to tell you, they are not sharing this true story of Scripture. They are not certain of these things. You and I must be diligent in sharing them. People need to know this. We have empty seats of people that can be here and hearing what God has for us. We must share this. For they leave church and they may be happy, they might enjoy the big show and all the things and the entertainment they have, but yet they walk away many times without the truth. Again, it was the church of the pastor of the largest church in America, not the largest church of America, one of the fastest growing, most influential, who said, you can do away with the virgin birth. Not do away with it, but just, just ignore it. Just don't deny it, just put it on the back burner. It's not important. When we read Isaiah chapter 9, and we read what this child will do, and that it will be no end to it, this speaks volumes to us today as we navigate through this world of uncertainty. The child Jesus would come to bring justice, righteousness, and peace forever. First, Jesus accomplishes this by reconciling us to God. That's what he did in his first advent. He reconciled us to God. He brought peace and righteousness and justice to our hearts. And now you and I, as we look past to redemption, we now look forward to that day when he returns. The second advent to right all wrongs and to rule forevermore. As we continue through our book of Luke, and I want to encourage you to read it with us, is he's writing an orderly account that you and I may be certain in a world of uncertainty. And you and I need to be certain that Christ has accomplishes, or has accomplished, I should say, the purposes of God to bring salvation to his people. 
And that one day his kingdom will supplant the rule of man. This ought to not only bring us certainty, but hope and anticipation of that wonderful day. So what do you and I do with this passage? Is it just for children's plays? Is it just something to remember once in a while, once a year? How do you and I respond to these wonderful truths about the person, the work of Jesus Christ? How do we respond to the child who was born to die for you and I? Well, with courage and boldness, we ought to do three things. Now end with this. You and I need to submit to his lordship and reign over all areas of our lives. For he is the king. Fully God, fully man. Truly God, truly man. Not only should we submit to his lordship and reign over all of our hearts and all that that means, but you and I need to serve him selflessly with all of our whole heart, our mind, and our strength. For he is worthy. He is worthy. <clears throat> and then thirdly, we're to worship him with a heart full of joy, gratitude, and love. He came to speak certainty to our life. The redemption story continues as the prince who comes to slay the dragon, wins the girl, is identified as the son of God who comes to redeem his people from their sin. I'd like to close with this last verse. Jake, did, do I have one more verse on, one more slide on there? Thank you. I couldn't remember if I did or not. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. The Apostle Paul writes this about who Jesus is. And because of him, speaking you of Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus, or speaking of God, who became to us wisdom from God. So if there's any doubt of who Jesus is, get this. He is the wisdom from God. He is our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. May we remember that as we celebrate this Christmas season and we share it with others. With every head bowed and every eye closed, we end here in a short time this morning. But I just want to share with you that God is good. He loves us above all things. And I want to encourage you, if you're doubting anything of your Christian life, the redemption story, would you come and let Randy or I know? We'd love to share with you how you can know Christ today, how he could be the savior of your heart, the redeemer that we need. And I would encourage you with courage and boldness, would you give this pronouncement yourself? Would you be like the angels who proclaim that Jesus is Lord, would you do so? We praise in Christ's name. Father, we thank you so much for you're so good to us. Courage us, lift us up, bring us certainty. Father, let us bring that certainty, that, that reason of hope that we may share it with others in this dark days. We thank you for your word. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. 
Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.